And for today's scripture reading, hey Joe, how are you? How are you, Joe? Uh, it's going to be on your sermon guide, but if not, it's going to be behind me. Uh, it's in John chapter 6, verses 60 through 69, and it reads, Many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to them, Does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to the heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are the Spirit and life, but some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew the beginning, Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. Then he said, that is why I said to the, to, that, I'm sorry, that is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would, would, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are holy one of God. Made it through it. I did it. Thanks for being here today. Uh, my name is Jason. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, hopefully we can do that. But uh, thanks for coming. We are in the, the fourth part of a series that we're calling, How Can I Be Sure? We're talking about doubt and questions about Christianity. And we're doing that in four parts. The first week we talked about what is truth. And then the second part we talked about who is Jesus. And then last week we talked about what is the Bible. And I have a lot I'd love to say about that, but I don't have time because I got a lot of stuff I'm saying today. Uh, but it has come to my attention that my sermons have been too long lately. And by my attention, I mean my 13-year-old daughter. Uh, but she's not wrong. She's speaking on behalf of many staff members, I think. But um, So today I'm going to try to answer the four biggest criticisms of Christianity in about 35 minutes is what I'm going to try to do, which I did not do in the first service. But we're going to try, okay? So here's how we're going to do it. Uh, I'm jumping right in, okay? Um, we're going to talk about the objections to Christianity based on science, suffering, sex, and slavery. They just happen to have all S's. That was not planned. They just happen to have all S's. Science, suffering, sex, and slavery. And the reason that I'm picking these is because in some form or another, these are the biggest modern critiques that most people have as to why they struggle to believe in God or that God is good or believe in some way that Christianity is harmful to society. Um, and so there's no really neat way to tie them all together. We're just going to kind of answer one, catch our breath, jump into the next one is how, um, is how we're going to kind of do that. Okay. Before I start though, I do want to say, I do want to say one thing that Anytime you're talking about topics like these, I have found, and I speak, I guess, from my experiences, I've found that these topics and the objections are usually less based on facts and more based on emotion. And what I mean is that when you talk about suffering, for instance, just taking that as an example, yes, people struggle with tsunamis and the Holocaust and things like that. But their parent dying of cancer is way bigger a hurdle to, to cross or to, to jump than tsunamis and, and cancer because there's such an, or than, than World War II because there's such an emotional barrier to that. And so they do struggle with why God would allow natural disasters, but they struggle more with why God would allow their parent to die. Um, and that's a legitimate thing. The same goes for racism and sex, and we'll talk about those things. But I say that because it took me a long time to realize, too long, because I have to learn everything the hard way, uh, and I'm stubborn. And so it took me a long time to realize that in most cases, trying to convince someone of the facts is rarely as helpful as you think it will be. And, and, and usually what's more helpful is letting someone know that you understand what they've been through is hard. And I want to say that because I'm going to give you tons of information today, tons of facts. And for some of you, you're going to be taking scrupulous notes and you're going to want to go talk to your sister-in-law immediately. Like you're ready, locked and loaded. Jason gave me the goods. It's not going to help. It's not going to help. You know what would help more? Is just saying, hey, I understand that what you've been through is really hard. That's what's going to help more. And it doesn't mean that we don't use facts to help us come to the conclusions that we need to come to. Um, and I'm going to give you those today. But for some of you in the room, 
even if I made the most perfect argument, it wouldn't matter. Because what, what we need more than facts is the Holy Spirit to help us believe in spite of our experiences. And let me say that again. What we need is we need the Holy Spirit to help us believe in spite of, of our experiences. And the, the verse, the scripture that uh, Bradley read for us today is this really beautiful, it's not beautiful, uh, challenging and awkward story, but there's something beautiful in it for us. Where Jesus, uh, in John 6, this really long passage, where Jesus uh, sees the crowd growing. And so he decides to, to thin the crowd a little bit, if you will, by saying some really hard things. Mainly what Jesus says is, I'm God. I'm God. And I get to determine things that God gets to determine. And then he says things like, uh, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And Jesus knows what he's doing. He's, he's giving these things that are hard to understand and controversial. And then where Bradley picked up is we see people were offended. People walk away. The disciples are confused. And Jesus turns to them and says, are you going to leave too? And what I love about this exchange is that it, it, it shows us, it gives us space to be offended, confused, and still follow Jesus. And I want you to hear that because I think when we're talking about doubts and questions a lot of times, there is this idea that we've either got to be fully compliant or out. But this story shows us that the disciples were really confused. A lot of the followers were offended. Who does Jesus think he is? What is he saying? What is he saying to us? Why did... And yes, a lot of people do walk, but a lot of people stay. And Peter's words were, I'm paraphrasing, that was really confusing, Jesus. I don't really know what the heck you were talking about. And the stuff that I think I do understand is highly offensive. But where else am I going to go? I, I, with all that I don't know, here's what I know. There's something real about this. There's something different about you. And you do have the words to eternal life. And so if you're here today and, and some of these topics we're going to talk about, or maybe even topics that we don't talk about, but you would say, man, that's offensive. Or you would say, that's really confusing. That doesn't mean you cannot follow Jesus. It just means you're wrestling with things that Jesus said that rub you the wrong way and confuse you. And that's okay. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So here we go. Question number one. We're going to start with science. We're going to start with science. The first objection in science, a skeptical person might argue something like this. I'm going to kind of make up a fictional argument, uh, a broad kind of umbrella here. A skeptical person might say something like this. I can't believe in God because there's too much scientific evidence against it. I can't believe in God because there's too much scientific evidence against it. I've talked about this a little bit before, but I think, I think one of the biggest issues about the debate between science and religion is the idea that it has to be either or. Um, that, that you have to either be pro-science or pro-God. And I will admit that there are a small, small minority of Christians who reject all science in the name of religion. And I know over the last couple of years with the pandemic, that was magnified and highlighted to be divisive and political and all of those things. But overwhelmingly, the majority of Christians are not either or on this topic. We believe in God and science. We believe in healing and medicine. We believe in the Bible and archaeology, right. that, that at the end of it, if you really want to know about it, we believe God created science. So to reject science would be to reject something beautiful that God um, gave us. But I've shared with you some of my struggles and some of my questions that I have about, I fully believe that God created the earth, and I fully believe that he did it in the way that the Bible describes it, in that he spoke it into existence, that God is powerful enough to create the world however he wants to create it. But I don't know that it exactly happened, exactly the way that it says it, in the way that I understand a day or 24 hours. I don't know. I'm not saying he didn't, and I'm not saying he did. I'm saying that is not a hurdle so great that it keeps me from Jesus. And so if you're here and you wrestle with some of that, the only real sticking point is do you believe that God is the creator or not? And everything else we can work through and we can wrestle together but I just want you to know that, you know, when it comes to things like dinosaurs and the age of the earth and all of those types of things, I don't know. But that does not keep me from Jesus. Now, as a Christian, there are 
things that I believe that go against uh, logic, right? Or, or the laws of gravity, so to speak, at least in the, in the Bible. Um, these things are miraculous and illogical. We say all the time our entire faith is based on the idea of resurrection. So, so we definitely believe things that are scientifically unprovable. But that doesn't mean that we take those instances and then apply them to everything else in life and say it's either God or it's science. It's either miraculous or it's logical. That's not the way that we, that we, um, that we do it. We believe God created science. And in no way does science disprove God or Christianity. There's very little that you could point to and say, well, because of that scientifically, that means it has to be true that God is not real. You could point to things and say, well, Christians have said this, but science proves that that's not true. Of course, people say dumb stuff all the time, right? And so of course there are people out there who would say, well, the earth is flat. And they say, well, no, that's not true, right? And they, they'll quote a Bible verse. You can find a Bible verse for anything. You know what I mean? So they quote something, and you say, well, you know, that's not true. And that's okay. Like, you can use science to point out things that are not true. Um, but, it, but it doesn't mean that it's either or. And I think the other thing about science that's important to talk about is this idea that, that science is out to disprove God. There's this idea that, like, science exists for atheism, or science exists to disprove the things that Christians say that they believe, or that if you are a scientist, you are not a Christian, that you have to be anti-God in order to be pro-science. But history would tell us that many of the foundational precepts and elements of our scientific theories were founded and created by Christians. I did a little research this week and um, found out that in the 11th century, there were friars, they gave some names, I'm not going to give you all the names, but that were, I mean, science existed before the 11th century, but the way that we explain it and the foundational methods that we use were created by friars. And then my favorite kind of story about this is that, um, is about Albert Einstein, that Albert Einstein, uh, who is considered to be, you know, the great, the great mind of science, he kept three pictures on his wall of, of three men who he considered to be his scientific heroes, Okay. The three men were Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, and James Clerk Maxwell. Now, Newton was an earnest believer in God. He had some issues with Jesus, but he was an earnest believer in God. And he wrote more about theology than he did physics. Faraday was a passionate Christian, deeply interested in the relationship between science and faith. And Maxwell was an evangelical Presbyterian who became an elder of the Church of Scotland. So Albert Einstein's three scientific heroes were men of devout faith. And again, I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there to point out to you that we don't have to live in this world that makes a choice between either science or God. And that so many scientists pursue science because of their love for God, because of their pursuit of knowledge about God. And so science isn't opposed to Christianity and Christianity isn't opposed to science and that's never been, that's never been true. But let me tell you one more thing about science and then we'll move on to the next question. And this is kind of at a more philosophical realm, okay? The bigger problem with the idea that we don't need religion because we have science is this, is that science can only tell you how something happens. It cannot tell you why something happens, right? So in other words, science can tell you exactly how you were born but science cannot tell you why you were born. You'll never get to the means of purpose, right? When it comes to your life, you can only understand the chemical makeup of how you came to be, but you'll never understand the purpose of why you're alive through science, through science, right? And so I think it's a beautiful thing for us to go to science to try to figure out the how of everything that you can. Some of us in here, we're wired to wanna to know how everything works. And that's totally great. It's a beautiful thing. But at some point in your pursuit of spiritual meaning or philosophy or, you know, existence, science will not be enough. It doesn't mean it's useless. It just means it will not be enough. And that if you want to find answers to questions about your life that are beyond how and move into the why, you're going to have to tap into something. Now, that may not be God for you. Maybe that's something else that you decide you want to pursue. For me... It's God. And for a Christian, it is this belief in God and that 
Our lives are ordained by him and created by him for a specific purpose, and we're filled with the breath of God. And so if you're here and you would say, I struggle to believe in God because there's so much I can't explain. I want you to know I get that more than you know. So much of my anxiety in life comes from this uncertainty that I want to know everything and and wrap my arms around everything and never have to wrestle with anything that's uncertain. And I'm having to come to terms with that. And so if you're here and you would say, man, I just don't know if I can be a Christian because there's so much I can't explain. I understand what you're saying, but that doesn't mean that you have found a reason to not believe in God. It just means you have things about life you can't explain. You can believe in God and have questions about life that you can't explain. You can follow Jesus and have questions about life that you cannot, uh, answers that you cannot um, explain. And I would argue you found the best reason to go to God because you need a greater meaning, a greater purpose, a greater answer um, that you can't find anywhere else. And so when it comes to science, we're not gonna be either or, we're not anti Science doesn't disprove God in any way. It does disprove stupid things that Christians say sometimes, but it doesn't disprove God. And more importantly, it doesn't help us answer questions about purpose for our life, okay? So that's the first question, is science. And uh, yeah, deep breath. (sighs) Moving on, number two. Let's talk about the second question. The second question, the uh, second kind of objection to Christianity would be suffering. Let's talk about suffering. And when I say suffering, I mean it in a greater sense, as in wars and natural disasters, uh, but, and not necessarily personal suffering, but what I'm going to say applies to personal suffering as well. So maybe your questions aren't with Ukraine and, and Russia. Maybe your questions are with a kid with special needs, and you're wrestling with the why guy God, anything like that. Like what I'm going to say applies to, to Ukraine and, and your church. Okay. So skeptic might, might say something like this. I can't be a Christian because God is, is loving. He would, wouldn't let all of these bad things happen. This is the objection to suffering. If God, God is loving, he would let all these bad, bad things happen. Now this, this, I love this, this, by the way, I love this question. I find that, that a lot of Christians are, are really intimidated by this because feel like we, like we have to per- perfectly explain the reasons why things happen, happen. And because we can't, we feel like somebody really has a solid, solid argument against the goodness of God. But it's not true. Um, and, and there's no reason to be intimidated by this. It's a really tricky conversation for a few reasons. And I'm going to try to explain to you. But I got to admit that even as I was typing, I was like, oh, my Lord, this, this is going to be confusing. Okay, so I want to try to get into this a little bit, but I'm just going to throw a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and let's see what sticks. Okay. <laughs> the first reason that this is tricky is because the person who's making the complaint is making the huge assumption that they know what love is and what good and bad are. Does that make sense? So somebody who says, I can't believe in God because... If God is loving, he wouldn't let all these bad things happen. That person is working under the assumption that they perfectly know how to define love, good, and bad. Now, if this person was open-minded to this question, and, and, and I'm assuming that they are, really the question that they're asking is, if God is loving as I define love, then he wouldn't let things that seem bad to me happen. Totally different question, right? You see the difference? I can't believe in God because if God's loving, he wouldn't let bad things happen. Humility says, who am I to know what love is and define good and bad? So the better question is, I struggle to believe in God as a loving God in the way that I define love because I can't rationalize why things that I define as bad are allowed to happen in life, which is a much different question. Every single one of us could think back to an event in our life that at the time seemed like the worst thing that's ever happened to us that now we would interpret differently. A really bad event that we would interpret differently. All of us would. We would say, man, you know, when that happened, I didn't think I could survive. I thought that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. But, you know, looking back, I I can see some purpose in it. I can see some goodness in it. You know what? In some instances, we would say, I thought it was bad, but it actually turned out to to be a good thing. Now, what I'm not saying is that if we'll wait, eventually we'll see mass death as a good thing. That's not what I'm saying, okay? I'm simply saying that we have to be careful not to presume that we are the final authority on what love and good and bad are. Does that make sense? 
And so there, most of the things that trouble us, we won't understand until the other side of eternity. I'm not saying we'll just hang on and then it'll make sense why that tsunami took out that country or a hurricane or, you know, a pandemic or just hang on. You'll, you, you may never know. But what's more important is having the humility to say, I don't know that I'm the best person to define love, good, bad, evil. I, I'm not sure that that's true. So that's the first reason it's tricky is this conversation has to be walked into with the utter humility to say, I, my finite reasoning may not totally understand what God's up to. That's the first reason. The second reason it's tricky is because you have to ask why you believe something is evil or unfair to begin with. This is where it can get a little bit crazy, okay? They're not crazy, but just confusing. So let me try my best to explain this, okay? Most of us have been raised in a world that defines right and wrong and evil based on Christian reasoning. We, especially in America, like we're so indoctrinated with Christian morality, ethics, or a Christian worldview that even if we're not a Christian and we don't believe in Christianity, we see life through a Christian worldview. We define morality and our laws and things through a Christian uh, worldview. And so we interpret fairness and unfairness, good and bad, evil and wrong, through a Christian worldview. But a really important question that you have to answer, if you would say, I struggle to believe in God because God, if God's love, why would something bad happen? That's not fair to those people or something like that. The first question you have to answer is, why is it wrong to treat people badly? Like, why is it unfair that a, that a hurricane would kill people? Why is it unfair that millions of Jews were put in a gas chamber and killed? Why is that wrong? Why is that unfair? I can just see that sound clip being pulled out right there. I'm going somewhere, okay? Why is it wrong? You have an answer. You believe that it's wrong. All of us in the room would say, that's wrong. Why? In order to come to that answer, you've got to figure out how you define right and wrong and what gives a life purpose and why people should be treated with dignity. That comes from somewhere. That comes from a framework. That comes from a philosophy or a belief in something. You say, well, no, it doesn't. It's just everybody knows. Everybody doesn't know that. Everybody doesn't believe that human beings should be treated with dignity. Everybody doesn't believe that death is unfair. And so if you believe that, which I think all of us do, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that it's wrong to treat people badly? You, you may say, well, because people deserve better. Why? Why do people deserve better? Well, you might say, because everyone deserves a chance to be happy. That's a modern idea. Why does everyone deserve a chance to be happy? See, if you keep doing this exercise, at some point you're going to have to define why life has any value at all. And whether you realize it or not, that belief that life has value and dignity is worthwhile and that, and that, and that being treated uh, uh, without dignity is unfair or death is unfair or suffering is unfair is based on a Christian worldview. Because before Christianity, the world was barbaric. Nobody was saying, you know what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Nobody was saying we're all created equal. No one's better than the other person. Everyone deserves the right to, you know, do what's in their heart. The world was barbaric. Life and death was just like, it's Tuesday. You may die today, right? And if you do, you do. I mean, that's just how it works. But then Christians showed up and started taking in babies who were abandoned off the street. Christians and Jesus showed up and started treating women with dignity when before that time, no one had treated women with dignity. Christians started building hospitals. Christians started building universities. Christians started treating people with dignity and value and started talking about things like purpose. And now thousands of years later, it has become such a pervasive idea that everyone, even non-Christians, see the world through a lens that believes that God owes us in some way a life of happiness and a life void of discomfort or suffering unless we can understand in real time, what the purpose or the value of it is. And beyond that, it seems to be unfair or outside of what God 
should do. But hear me, without a God, there's no such thing as evil. If we're going to die and go into the ground and worms are going to eat our body, then it doesn't matter. You say, Jason, you're being really ridiculous because everybody, even without God, everybody knows there's like, there's, there's a moral reasoning, Jason. Like we can't just, and what I'm telling you is that's not true. You got to dig beyond that moral reasoning and figure out why you believe that a life matters at all. Because if we're going to die and this is all it is, then what you should be doing is leaving right now and going and doing everything that you can think of and, and going as far as you can to try to be as happy as you can for the years that you have left because when it's over, it's over. Hurt whoever you need to hurt in order to make that happen. Take whatever you need to take in order to make that happen because when it's over, it's over. But if you believe that life has value, a soul matters and that there's life after this life, then you have a different way that you see the world. And I know, I know this sounds cold, and, I'm, and, and it also sounds like I'm trying to trick or trap. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. I'm trying to show you that the very idea that something happens in this world is evil or unfair is admitting in some way that you believe there's a God who should do better than that. And so to not believe in God because of evil is, is denying the fact that you believe there's a God who should do better than that. You following what I'm saying? I got a lot to say about suffering. I ain't got time, but let me just drop two more things in here, okay? As Christians, our entire faith is built on the idea that God left heaven to volunteer to come and suffer. No other religion says that. No other religion claims that. Who would be dumb enough to leave eternal glory to come be one of us? Our God did. And so if you're here today and you're struggling with the idea of suffering in large scale, or you're here today and you're suffering with something personally in your life, you have a Savior who knows what that feels like. You have a savior who chose to not, to, to set aside being God and to come be a human being and to experience the worst suffering that could be experienced. And so your God is not so distant from the feelings that you feel or the pain that you are wrestling with. We need Jesus and we look to Jesus because he came and he lived in this place like we are living and feel what we feel and faced what we face. And even in the face of suffering, he looked at God and quoted Psalm and said, why have you abandoned me? So if you are going through something so awful that it causes you to wonder if God himself has turned his back on you, you're being like Jesus. You're being like Jesus. So that's, the, that, that's what I would say about, about Christianity and the power of Jesus' suffering. But, I, but let me say one more thing, and then we're going to move on. As Christians, we believe that God is just. We believe that he is a just, J-U-S-T as in justice. Just, did I spell that right? J-U-S-T-I-C-E. I can't remember how I said it. But anyway, he is a just God. Okay? And so... Whether you know it or not, as a Christian, you, you believe that God is a just God because when you asked for forgiveness for your sins, you didn't deserve that. So what would have been fair and just would have been for God to be like, no. But because he sent Jesus to die for your sins, he forgives you because that way it doesn't, he's not doing anyone any favors. He's not cutting any corners. He's not, he's not a contradiction. Your sins are forgiven and God is just because of Jesus. So whether you know it or not, you believe that God is a just God. Now here's where it gets tricky. When you see something in life happen that seems unfair, you go, well, I don't know if I can believe in God because that seems unfair. And what you're doing is you're using your experiences to define what you believe God is like. But instead, as Christians, what should, we should be doing is using what we know to be true about God to define our experiences. You following what I'm saying? So we look at something in life and we go, that makes 
absolutely no sense, but I know God is just. That seems like the most unloving thing that a God could ever do, but I know God is love. So I don't understand it, and it offends me, and I'm not even sure what to do with it, but I believe God is just, and I believe God is love. That means whatever it is that I'm wrestling with, my starting point is the justice and the love of God. My starting point is not my interpretation of the events, and then laying that interpretation on what I believe God is like. That deserves a whole separate sermon, but that's all I got, okay? There will come a day when we stand before God and we will see every event in human history from his perspective. And hear me, because he's just, when that time comes, not one single person will have an objection. Even non-Christians who will go to hell will not object that God was unfair. Because when we see, when we see the world through the perspective of God, we will be able to say, nothing that happened to me was unfair. And we can't say that right now because we can't see it. We have faith in a God who is just. But there will come a point when we will see life through the lens of eternity and God. And at that point, we'll have no objections. So the part of us that wants to reject that God is just or that he doesn't do things that are unfair is the part that still believes we know better than God in some way. But really, that desire that we feel and that longing that we have for everything to be right, made right and nothing to be unfair and everything to be love and everything to be peace, what that is, is that is the longing that God has put inside of your heart for heaven. What you are wanting will come to pass, just not here, there. Okay, so that's suffering. Awkward transition to sex, okay? Um, let's talk about sex. A skeptical person might argue something like this. I can't be a Christian because it is sexually repressive and tries to tell people what they have to do with their bodies. I can't be a Christian because it is sexually repressive and tries to tell people what they have to do with their bodies. This is probably the most current and controversial debate happening right now, but it's definitely not a new discussion. Christians trying to figure out how the teachings of Jesus aligns with their bodies and their sexual desires has been around since Jesus walked the earth. So this is not a new, like in the last 30 years, Christians haven't been like, what are we going to do? We didn't even know this was in there. We are... We've always been wrestling with this. And so let me just start by articulating what Christianity teaches about sex, okay? This is, this is what I'm gonna to say to you is the Christian framework for sexuality or the, or the Christian sexual ethic, and this is it, ready? Sex as described by God was created for reproduction and pleasure between a man and a woman within marriage. That means that any sexual intercourse outside of marriage is outside of God's good plan and design. This is what God said in the Old Testament. This is what Jesus said in the Gospels. This is what the Apostle Paul said in the epistles. This is what Christians and church orthodoxy has said for thousands of years. That sex, as described by God, was created for reproduction and pleasure between a man and a woman within marriage. And that means that any sexual intercourse outside of marriage is outside of God's good plan and design. I'm very well aware of what, that what I'm saying is highly offensive to a large number of people. And culture would say that sex is just sex. And while it is meaningful, everyone will agree that sex is meaningful. There's nothing wrong, Jason, with expressing yourself sexually as long as it's not harmful or illegal. Um, and this has been a growing sentiment really since the sexual revolution. I mean, it's not a new thing even since then. But especially for us in America... This is a growing sentiment since the sexual revolution and its implications have been far reaching. Not the least of which is the way that it has redefined marriage and the family. I've told you this before, but one in four millennials were raised in a home with a single parent. And 1988 was the highest divorce rate in the history of our country, which is if you go and look at a map, you'll find about the time when all of the sexual revolution people had been married for just a little while. And so we, we, we started adopting this mindset that the way the Bible or Christianity defines sex is fine for those who want to choose that, but 
that it's not necessarily something that is true for, for all of us. And we, as long as it's not illegal or harmful, should be able to express ourselves sexually however uh, we want. And to be clear, if you're not a Christian, go for it. But for those of us who are Christians, like we live our life within the framework and the, and this, and the Christian sexual ethic. I want to be gross here, but um, the CDC just put out its latest findings two weeks ago. Shows that STDs have increased 30% since 2015 and hit a record high for the sixth straight year. Six years in a row, STDs were at a record high. And so I say all that to say this, when you look at divorce, when you look at what it's doing to raising children, when you look at sexually transmitted diseases, even if you're not a Christian and you think Christianity is ridiculous, you, you can't love what you're seeing with the idea of free love, sexual expression. It's not working. We're more emotionally damaged. We're more physically damaged. We're more mentally damaged. So even based nothing on the Christian belief, I think we could all agree that this pursuit of being unhindered in any way to express ourselves sexually is not doing our souls as human beings good. And I believe there are three big lies that come from our culture about sex that goes against Jesus' teaching. I'm going to give those to you again. Could use a whole sermon. I told Kim after the first service, I was like, dang, we should have done a series on every question. It would have been a sermon. But anyway, all right. Three big lies that come from our culture about sex that goes against Jesus' teaching. The first lie is that every desire is legitimate. Every desire is legitimate. I want to be very careful how you hear me say this. Every desire is real. But every desire is not legitimate in the sense that just because you feel it, you get to do something about it. It's very real. Don't in any way let a Christian ever tell you or a Christian leader ever tell you that your desires are not real, that you're not really feeling them. But there's not a legitimacy to them that just because you are feeling them means in some way that you get to have it. That's the first lie, every desire is legitimate. Second lie is that celibacy is impossible. Jesus talked about this I mean, the words on the page, Jesus said to us that there are people who choose celibacy for the purposes of the kingdom of God. And in one of my favorite verses in the Bible, after Jesus gets done saying that, the disciples go, this is a very hard teaching. <laughs> yeah, nailed it. Jesus himself said, you, you can, for the purposes of the kingdom of God, choose to live a celibate life. And because of scandals and priests and church leaders and people who have taken that vow of celibacy and it's done harm to them in some mental or emotional way, we reject this idea and say, that's not possible. Every person has to be able to, to express themselves or fulfill themselves sexually. But that's not what Jesus said. And I, I, if that's offensive or confusing, I, I understand what you're saying. I'm, but that's not what Jesus said. And he is our standard and he's who we follow. The third, the third lie would be that self-control is cruel. That self-control is cruel. So here's the three lies again. Every desire is legitimate, celibacy is impossible, and self-control is, uh, is cruel. Don't let anybody tell you you can't have what you want to have, do what you want to do. Don't be boxed in. It's cruel. Now these three ideas are why someone would feel that Christianity is sexually repressive. Because Christianity teaches that you are not entitled to fulfill your sexual desire just because you have them. Let me say it again. Christianity teaches that you are not entitled to fulfill your sexual desires just because you have them. This is true for married, single, male, or female. Sexual desire is part of being human. But Christianity teaches that just because you feel something doesn't mean you are entitled to it. I want to be really clear. Your feelings are real. No one is saying they're not, or at least they shouldn't say that. And if somebody did say that, or that's been presented in some way, it's wrong, it's harmful, it's damaging, it's dangerous. No one is saying that you should trick yourself into convincing yourself that you don't feel something that you feel. As Christians, we are well aware of what we feel and what we want but we lay down our life and we follow Jesus because he's the way, the truth, and the life. This is what it means to be a Christian. 
God, I come to you because I am very aware of what I feel and what I want and how the temptation and the sin in my life is pulling me away from believing that all goodness is found in you, all fulfillment is found in you, all life is found in you. I know it's there. I feel it. But I lay down my life and I follow you. Culture says that freedom is being able to do whatever you want to do. You're not free until you have no boundaries. You do whatever you want to do. But Christianity says that freedom is being able to not do whatever you want to do. Please hear that. That's not like some little word trick. That's very important. Culture says freedom is being able to do whatever you want to do. But Christianity says freedom is being able to not do whatever you want to do. That you're not at the mercy of your impulses or your instincts. That you are able to have freedom to be able to not do the things that your body is telling you you need to do. And so for somebody who would say, man, I'm free. I'm not bound by all that. I get to do whatever I want. I'm not arguing with you, but I would just say like, don't do it for 30 days. And if you can't do it, then you're not free. You're just obeying a different master. You have, you, you have just as little control as you once had. You just have a new boss. So everybody listen to me. Please hear my heart. Sexual desire is real. Being a human is hard. Just let that sit. Don't hear, any, don't hear me saying anything about how it ain't that bad. Get over it. No. Sexual desire is real and being a human is hard. And following Jesus requires all of us to lay down the way of life we believe is the best way to be happy. But Christianity since the beginning has had the same belief about sex. It came from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus said sex within marriage or celibacy. Sex within marriage or celibacy. And repression, repression is trying to block your desires and trick yourself into acting like they're not there. And if that is in some way what you believe Jesus is telling you to do, that's not what he's telling you to do. He's not telling you, or Christianity is not trying to make you sexually repressed. It's not there. It might never matter. La, 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 la. Nope, 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 nope. But there's a difference between repression and suppression. Suppression says, I'm fully aware of what I feel, but I'm not giving in to them. Repression says, it's not true, it's not true, it's not true, it's not true, it's not true. Suppression says, oh, no, 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 it's true. But just because I feel it doesn't mean that I have to do it. And just because I feel it doesn't mean I'm entitled to have it. Jesus gives us the power against sin because of Jesus And the spirit of God living inside of us, we do not have to be powerless against our sexual desires. But once we stop laying down our life, it's no longer following Jesus. It's only following Jesus when you go where he goes and you do what he said to do. Okay? All right. This won't be an awkward transition at all. Let's talk about slavery. Um... Slavery, a skeptical person might say something like this. I can't be a Christian because Christians are racist and the Bible condones slavery. I can't be a Christian because Christians are racist and the Bible condones slavery. I think the place that we need to start here is repentance. I think that's the best place to start. Um, I think the white American church, by and large, has been troublesome at best and just terrible at worst when it comes to racism and slavery. Uh, You know, the famous line from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America is is, is is a chilling statement. So I think repentance is where we have to start. And this is not me being woke or being liberal. I'm so grateful, by the way, let me just say this. I'm so grateful that I pastor you in Louisville, Kentucky, this congregation. I have so many friends and a brother who pastors in Georgia, down in the deep south. And uh, he's not able to say, if, if he said the statement that I just said, he would lose half his church. 
which is just pathetic and sad. But I love the fact that we're able to have these types of conversations and, um, and, and you, you handle it so gracefully. In the last 18 to 24 months, we have not been perfect, but you have handled it so gracefully. And I wanna thank you for that. But it's not me trying to be woke or be liberal or whatever those things mean, I guess. It's just a non-defensive white Christian looking at the history of our country, specifically in the South where I was raised, and admitting that the church could have done more to try and tear down racial divides. And if we can't agree on that, I don't really know where else we're going to go with this conversation. If we can't agree that while we can't all solve the world's problems together, I could do better in my home. I could do better in my work. I could do better in my neighborhood. I could do better in my church. I can't solve the world's problems. I can't solve the country's problems. But when I look at me and my life, I've got to be able to come to God and say, God, I repent. I repent. Um, So let me just, before I answer the question, let me just take a moment and talk to all the white Christians, brothers and sisters in the room, which looking around the room is almost all of us, which is a separate sermon. Um, When someone who has faced hardships or discrimination is sharing their story, you do not have to be defensive. This is true for the sexual conversation, by the way, too. If somebody disagrees with us, we don't don't have to be defensive. Um, I think it's really important when someone is sharing their story or their experience with us that we don't feel the need to like specifically for those of us who are white, I'm not, I don't, I don't speak on behalf of all white people. I definitely don't speak on behalf of all black people. But I think like if somebody's sharing their experiences, you don't have to feel like you need to apologize for being white or having what you have. You don't have to try and minimize their experience. Uh, you don't have to try and match their hardships with stories of your own. You just got to listen. You just got to listen. And it's not their responsibility to educate you. You need to take some responsibility to educate yourself. But you just listen. And you say, you know what? I could do better. I could do better. And God, I'm sorry. And if you'll help me, I will. But let me, let me try to just answer the, the overarching critique um, of this idea that the Bible condones slavery and that Christianity is racist. So let's take both of those and separate them out. Does the Bible condone slavery uh, is is the first question. Um, And I will say this, the answer is no, but I can understand how it's not clear that it's no. I mean, when you read the Bible, you see the theme of slavery weave throughout the scriptures in a lot of places. And so I totally understand why someone could open the Bible and go, whoa, And so if you'll give me just a few moments, I want to try to explain to you in context what what are the differences between slavery in our American idea, American context, versus slavery in in the Bible, because there are some major differences. I'm going to give you three of them, okay? Here they are. The the first difference is that when you read about slavery in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but especially the Old Testament, ancient slavery was not connected to racial hierarchy as much like it has been in America. For example, you'll find sections in the Old Testament where the Hebrews were the slaves to the Egyptians, and then you'll find other stories where the Egyptians were the slave to the Hebrews. I'm not saying it was right in any instance, but I'm saying that like there wasn't different skin colors and different nationalities that automatically put someone into a slave status. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's the first, uh, first difference. The second difference is that Uh, ancient as opposed to American, it was common for people to sell themselves into slavery as a form of employment as opposed to poverty, which poverty is a very real thing for us now, but, but especially compared to back then, like slavery would be viewed as the lowest form of employment, but in their minds, it was better than dying of starvation, right? And so you'll find stories in the Bible where people were selling themselves into slavery out of a need to to survive. And then the third difference would be, uh, as far as an ancient context, that you could advance as a slave, even to the point of becoming like a, a senior civil servant or something like that, okay? So in no way am I throwing those three things out to be like, see, it wasn't that bad. 
It was terrible. It's an awful way to exist. It's an awful way to live. But when you see verses in the New Testament where Paul talks about slaves obeying their masters, it's helpful to think more, less in terms of cotton fields and, and think more in terms of the movie The Gladiator. Now, The Gladiator is a fiction, fictional story. I'm only giving it to you as an image so you can kind of see something in your head if you've seen that, Russell Crowe. In no way am I saying that it was not a harsh life. In no way am I saying that someone would rather have had that than have had their own life or their own land or their own family. And in the gladiator's case, he was sold into slavery, just like Joseph. But it was also a form of employment in the class system that existed regardless of ethnicity. Anybody could be a slave. Anybody could have chosen to be a slave and worked as the lowest form of employment in the class economic system that they had, okay? So that, that, those are just some contextual differences that you would not know if you just picked up and you flipped it open. And did you know, by the way, there's a whole letter, there's a whole book in the New Testament where Paul is writing to Philemon, who owns a slave because Paul has found a slave that ran away from Philemon and sends the slave back. And Philemon is a Christian and Paul is writing to him about how to treat his slave. Philemon, that's what Philemon's about. So you can go read that this afternoon. But more importantly than that, I think it's important to recognize that when God gave Moses the laws, the rules to govern the life of God's people, he used language about slavery because it was a very real part of the life that was existing at that time. But God continually told his people and reminded his people, don't ever forget you were once slaves. So if you know the story of Moses and Exodus, God's people were slaves for 400 years. And so Moses brings them out and God keeps saying to them, don't ever forget what it felt like to be a slave. Don't ever forget, because you know what it felt like. Don't ever, forget like. don't ever forget what it felt like to be a slave. And let that govern how you treat people, how you treat slaves and immigrants and widows and orphans. And so when God was giving Moses the structure and the way of life for his people, he gave them some very specific instructions in the way that they should interact with slaves. Let me just give you a couple of these. Uh, according to God, to Moses, to the people, slave catching was a capital offense. You could not be God's people and go out and capture slaves. Slaves were given uh, protections and privileges. For example, if, the, if God's people were given a day of rest, then the slaves were given a day of rest. Um, if, a, if a slave owner did permanent bodily harm, the slave had to be released. If any Hebrew man or woman was sold into slavery, they had to be released six years later with gifts unless they chose to remain. And Israel specifically in Deuteronomy was commanded to offer refuge to escape slaves and not send them back. So again, thinking within the context of the lowest form of employment in the class system, and God's people working from a posture of, we know what that was like, and I would never choose that for anybody. God tells Moses to tell the people, how you treat the lowest among you is a reflection of what you believe to be true about me. How you treat the lowest among you reveals what you believe to be true about God. And so, yeah, you've got these people among you who are the lowest on the scale of employment, but you better be good to them too. You better be good to them too, because you're my people. You're my people. So while I can understand someone seeing certain verses in the Bible about slavery and feeling as if the Bible is permissive of slave ownership or telling like a, a slave that they don't have the right to be free, the Bible should never be used in any way, in any context for anything like this. Because our entire theology is based on the idea that we have all been slaves. We all know and should know what it feels like to feel powerless, to have no freedom and to have no rights in a spiritual way. Incapable. Incapable of finding our freedom. And Jesus wants us to be to be free. And this helps us answer the second question, is Christianity a racist religion? The easy answer is no. The entire Christian faith is based on the belief that every single human being is so sinful and incapable of making themselves good enough for God 
that we have to have a savior. There is no scenario where a Christian should ever see themselves as superior to any other human being, which is why racism and Christianity cannot coexist. I'm not saying that there aren't feelings that Christians wrestle with because of their family of origin, all those things, but I'm saying there's no such thing as like a non-tension between Christianity and racism because the very essence of Christianity says there's no sinner worse than me and no one more in need of God than me. How would I look on my peers and say, you're worse than me? I came to the cross and laid myself down and said to God, God, I have recognized in myself how awful and despicable I am. How could I look on somebody else and, and, not, and, and think that they are somehow worse than me? Christianity played a massive role in the abolitionist movement. I got facts here that I've run out of time to share with you, but just know that any, anywhere, yes, Christians and churches should have done more, but anywhere you find strong abolitionist movement, you'll find people with devout faith who are compelled to do what they are doing because of their belief in God. This is not even counting or not to discount black brothers and sisters who, who risked their own lives to do this. Harriet Tubman and, and uh, Frederick Douglass and David Walker and Henry Highland Garnet and more that we could use that, that are saying like, because of my faith in God and my disdain for the way that my brothers and sisters are being treated, I'm going to risk my life in order to do something about that. But let me say one more thing and then we'll be, <laughs> we'll be done. Um, this is hard, but... Without Christianity, what is your reason for feeling like slavery is wrong? Again, going back to suffering in science, like if there's no God and if the Christian worldview is not true, then why can't the most powerful just take and use people? What's wrong? Why is that bad? See, in order to believe that slavery is despicable, you have to believe that every single person is made in the image of God filled with the breath of God. And so we come back to this tension that we feel that everything inside of us wants to push away from the regulations and the, and the beliefs about God because it infringes on our life in some way. But the way that we view everything to be right and wrong and fair and unfair with the world is based on a belief in a good God. And the Jesus Christ who loves us so much that he would come and die to save us. And the reason that slavery is wrong and despicable and intolerable and racism is infuriating is because we are all made in the image of God and saved through the work and the life of Jesus Christ. And so like the disciples and like Peter, we come to these and other things that we haven't talked about and we say, dang, God, that's hard. Jesus, that's offensive. And he comes back to us and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, oh man, I'm not going anywhere. It's just hard and confusing. And if you're here today and you've heard all these things we've talked about and you're like, man, that's hard and confusing and offensive. It's okay. What you're experiencing is the tension of a life committed to Jesus versus the life that you believe will make you most happy. But we believe Jesus has the words to life and there's something real about this. And so we take all the things we can't understand and all the things that rub us the wrong way and we bring them to Jesus and we say, we'll figure them out as we go, but I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, Kaylee and, and the team are going to come, and they're going to lead us in some music, and we'll have the opportunity to take communion. And as we take communion today, and we take the bread and the juice, we get to be reminded that our, our Savior was a human being. He came and he suffered. Science could explain his existence because he was made up as a human being. He came and he suffered. He came and was celibate. And he came and treated every person with dignity. And so today, as we take communion, maybe we could be challenged to embrace our humanity. 
to stand in the face of suffering, to not feel entitled to our sexual desires, and to treat everyone around us with a little more dignity. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that I don't have to guess what you're like or what you want me to do because you gave me Jesus Christ. You give me a way to follow, a person to follow. And so God, I just pray for every person who's bumping up against the offensive and confusing ideas. God, I just pray that we would not abandon our faith because there are things we don't like or don't understand, but we would keep those with us and continue to bring them to you because regardless of what we struggle with, we know, God, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so, God, I just pray right now for every person listening to my voice. I pray, God, that um, we would embrace our humanity. We would stand in the face of suffering. We wouldn't feel entitled to our sexual desires and we would treat each other with dignity like you did, that you are our model. You are our way. In Jesus' name we pray.